Welcome to the ATP podcast with me, Chris Bowers, coming to you from the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Centre in Flushing Meadows, New York, home for the next two weeks to the final Grand Slam of the year, the US Open. I'm delighted to be joined this week, fresh from her watching the qualifying events by the former WTA player, Jill Krabus. How are you doing, Jill? I'm great. I'm happy to be here once again. It's a great place to be at this time of the year. Um, Who's impressed you in qualifying this week? Well, a lot of names have impressed me. A couple stand out in particular. Um, There's a Chinese gentleman. Well, there's actually two Chinese players that were able to qualify, Wu and also uh, Zhang, Jin Zhen. I hope I'm saying that right. He goes by Triple Z, which I just found out recently. But I watched his last, last match, and I was really impressed. It was the first time I had seen him play. And he played he played some great matches going through qualifying. But when he came through, just his celebration, you could uh, feel the emotion coming through him when he won that match. And I believe it's the first time Chinese players have qualified for the U.S. Open. So that's a big deal for that country. And he's a... He's a great player, strong. He's got the, probably the perfect tennis physique, 6'2", six, six um, definitely over six feet, but strong, good stature. He's got a big serve. Because that's the thing that, I mean, the Chinese women have done very well, but the right. Chinese men have often just right. been physically too small. Yeah, and to have two of them come through, I think that's that's a big deal. And I would say they're definitely two to watch um, as they go into the main draw, because I think those three qualifying matches will help them. And also, the uh, I want to point out the American Brandon Holt, who came through qualifying. He play he doesn't have uh, really a lot of firepower, but he plays so well, very close up to the baseline, takes the ball so early, and he had some tough, tough three set matches. He's the son, of course, of former U.S. Open champion Tracy Austin, and the emotion Tracy was sitting in the stands, and the emotion and just the tension and the nerves you could see coming through. In the but she held it together. But the moment after he qualified, they had a really nice moment where they embraced and just took maybe 10 to 15 seconds. They had a little chat, but it was a really nice moment. I was chatting to Tracy a few weeks ago, and she was saying how she really wanted to be a good tennis mother (laughs) because she saw so many tennis parents when she was growing up who, let's say, weren't the, uh, the model that one would like to follow. I think that would be tough for her because she knows what it feels like to be out there. She knows what it feels like to have to handle that pressure and to the moment to her, have her son get, get to the qualifying or go through the qualifying and get to the main draw. So she knows all that entails. So she probably was feeling just as emotional as he was at that moment. The big story of the week has obviously been Novak Djokovic. Would he play? Would he not? In the end, on Wednesday, he he pulled out just before the draw was made, which I thought was the decent thing to do. Thwarted, we need to say, not by the tournament. The tournament was willing to let him play, but the um, immigration authorities said, no, people cannot fly in without being fully vaccinated. And, you know, he has chosen not to be. And therefore, we're missing him. I do think it's unfortunate. I like that the tournament was outwardly uh, spoke about how much they would love to have him play. All the players have been speaking about that they think it's fair to let him come in and play. Obviously, you can't get around the government and what their decision is for unvaccinated people being able to to not arrive here. Um, so it is unfortunate because I think this is the type of tournament. That, I mean, of course, the Grand Slams, you want all the top players to play. Everyone that deserves to be there should should be able to play. But um, unfortunately, he he can't be with us at this tournament this year. Yeah, I mean, I've tried to keep clear of any medical issues because I'm not qualified. I'm no medic. I'm I'm no scientist. Um, The the unfortunate thing about this is that 
if an American is unvaccinated and is in America or has come in um, through a land border, then they could play. So it just feels slightly inconsistent here, but it's a government rule, not a USDA rule. Yeah, it feels like, because of that, it feels like it doesn't make sense. But unfortunately, we can't get around what, what the law is, is stating. It means we only have one of the big three in the draw. That's Rafael Nadal. But he's one of five players who have the chance to end the US Open as world number one, depending on results, of course. Nadal, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Alcaraz and Rude. Now, if you'd said at the start of the year... Come the US Open, uh, you have five players in with a chance. You'd say, well, OK, Nadal, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, understood. Alcaraz, I mean, on the basis of this result, this year's results, yes. But Rude, I mean, I don't think at the start of the year we'd have expected Alcaraz and Rude to be within striking distance of world number one. Uh, I think it's exciting. It's also been such a weird year with people not being able to play certain events or certain Grand Slams. So it's been a very strange year. Um, but I think it's very exciting for the men's game. We've we've been talking for numerous years now about once those big three aren't around anymore, who's going to replace them. I think there's a lot of names that are exciting, a lot of great characters on the court, a lot of uh, players that have exciting games. So I think it's going to be fun to watch the next generation come up. And I think I think it's great that there are so many names that have this opportunity to potentially end the year number one. I think I think uh, fans across the world are going to be excited about these these new up-and-comers. We're, everyone's already getting very familiar with Alcaraz. He made a big showing here last year. I think a lot of player, uh, a lot of people got familiar with him at the U.S. Open last year. And now you watch him around the world and he's so popular. He's such, he seems like such a good guy. I haven't spoken to him that much, but I love his game. And Rude, I don't think if you ask a lot of players, I don't think any of them are surprised that he got to the finals of a clay of Roland Garros because that's his best surface, surface, of course. And I've seen, I've heard a lot of players say they're not surprised that he got to the finals. They think he'll eventually could potentially win Roland Garros for sure, if not more Grand Slams. I mean, we're celebrating this year the 50th anniversary of the founding of the ATP. Next year, it's the 50th anniversary of the computer rankings. And in if Alcaraz were to end up as world number one after the US Open, he would be the youngest ever in the 49-year history. I mean, at the moment, Leighton Hewitt, who won in uh, 2001 and ended that year as a 20-year-old world number one, that was he's the youngest still, but Alcaraz could beat that, which is remarkable given that we've been saying in recent years tennis is an older person's game. It is impressive. I think those type of situations don't come around that often. So when they do, you obviously pay attention to the numbers and then you pay attention to, you just assume he's going to have a very long, successful career. I think everything has to go right, even with someone who's so talented and who's had climbed up the rankings very quickly. You have to make sure you stay healthy. You have to make sure you manage your body, manage your schedule. And he's got a great team behind him. Obviously, Juan Carlos Ferrero has a lot of experience in that regard in so many of those categories. So he'll be on top of that as well. But it's exciting to see him progress and to see him get so successful. And it's the first time that he's been in the top five. It was the first time he was seated number one in an event a couple weeks ago. And he was talking about how he struggled to manage that pressure. Now, now for me, I don't think it's going to take him that long to get used to being at the top and get used to handling that pressure. It's just about gaining more experience in, the, in that position. 
Well, we'll talk more about Alcaraz and other exciting names in the course of this podcast. We'll also talk a little bit about Serena Williams towards the end. I know it's the ATP podcast and therefore we focus mainly on the men, but uh, this is likely to be Serena Williams' last tournament and therefore we need to talk about her uh, superb legacy. But let's get to hear from some of the protagonists at the US Open, starting with the defending men's champion, Daniel Medvedev. He spoke with Mike Cation, who asked Medvedev about how he likes to change up his game during matches. I think I always enjoyed it. Uh, when I was young, I didn't have uh, much shots to, to disturb my opponents. Uh, they were all uh, hitting stronger than me. I think I could only serve quite well all the time. And then in the game, there were many matches where I felt like if we just uh, go uh, boom, boom, in, you know, I'm going to lose. So I had to, had to try something different. And on practice, the same. A lot of times, uh, good coach going to put you against a stronger opponent. I hated it because I was losing uh, many times. But always uh, I hate to lose. So I was like, how can I beat this opponent that is better than me? And I think it helps me today because there are definitely some matches where uh, I lose, yeah, because, uh, you know, uh, other players on the other side of the net, they're also smart. They're also, they all want to beat me. They try to disturb my game plan. And, uh, yeah, a lot of times a tennis game is going to be uh, how to find a weak spot of your opponent, even if at our level it's not really a weak spot. It's just a spot where maybe you're not going to get uh, winners uh, from. Uh, I try to make my opponent's life, life tough. Because I still feel like sometimes my shots uh, are not better than my opponents, but yeah, I'm trying to win these matches. It seems to me, I, having watched you from afar for a while, you really enjoy, if it's just you and an opponent on a court, you would absolutely still be doing exactly what you're doing. You really take pride in just that ability to outwork and outthink an opponent. Um, I'm trying to do it. You know, I don't want to say that, uh, like... If we talk like this, you know, in the beginning of the match, uh, like from the first point, I'm not going to try to straight away get in my opponent's head or something like this. Uh, sometimes the matches are like, you feel like, uh, I don't know, your backhand is better than your opponent. You just try to crash his backhand. It's working. Uh, you win the match. It's done. Perfect. And there is not much to talk about. Uh, sometimes it's different. And, you know, as I'm saying, the thing the thing is that a lot of opponents can do the same to me. Like, there are some matches that I lost when I was leading. Uh, but uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy, uh, I enjoy competition in general. Uh, and every time I have an opponent, either it's an online computer game or, uh, I don't know, racing against my friends, uh, playing mini golf against my friends. Okay, golf is different because you actually play kind of against yourself. Uh, but when there is competition one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I always want to beat my opponent. And many times it's going to be by uh, finding his weak spot. Yeah. What's really been interesting to me, Daniil, is how engaged the fans are. Um, so much focus, obviously, understandably, has been about the top four. But what have you noticed in that respect in terms of how much these fans are really enjoying some of these battles from the up-and-comers? I think, uh, you know... Uh, uh, it's a little bit not easy for uh, for young guys coming because what we had for the last 15 years is uh, Novak, Roger, Rafa and Andy winning a lot of tournaments in semifinals, bringing the best uh, tennis maybe in the history of our sport. One of the best battles, five hours on Grand Slams, like crazy matches. And yeah, they beat all the records just because they play really good. You know, in tennis it's less about... Uh, the racket, it's not like, yeah, 
uh, they had a better record than other guys. Uh, you can uh, you can choose your own one uh, and uh, make it a little bit as you want. Um, and uh, for us to to reach their level of their consistency is never easy. Like uh, I'm going to be honest, I I don't. Sometimes I lose matches, which I think they wouldn't uh, have not lost at my age. But it's just because uh, they're amazing. Uh, and so, of course, people, fans are going to be comparing a little bit like these guys are maybe worse than the big three. Well, there is everybody who was worse in the history of tennis than the big three, to be honest, uh, in terms of results, at least. Um, so uh, we are just trying to do our thing. You know, we go out there, we battle against each other. We try to win these tournaments. I think people love tennis. So it's great to see that they are enjoying it. He is such good value, Daniel Medvedev. He engages with every question. He always gives you something to think about in interviews. I love his line, Jill, about the, the big three or big four not being the best because they had the best rackets. Now, you could say that's a statement of the obvious, but doesn't need saying every now and again that tennis is a meritocracy. It is, and it's impressive. I agree with you. I do love hearing from Medvedev every time he speaks because he always gives you such insightful information about where he's at, where he's coming from. But what's been impressive, and I think this is what he's speaking about, is the big three, yes, have been completely impressive, not only with their success, but the fact that they've been successful over so many years. Because as we know, the game keeps getting stronger and stronger. Everyone's getting better, whether it's with the technology, everyone's getting faster, everyone's taking care of themselves. And the fact that they've been able to sustain that over so many years – I think sends a message to someone like a Medvedev who can be like have a different perspective on it. And he acknowledged that, didn't he? About yes, you know, saying that they still win matches that he would lose. Yeah, and it's about adjusting. And I think that's why these other players. I mean, Medvedev has won a slam, of course, as well as a lot of players that have won a slam, but. I think it gives them an even more appreciation to be like, wow, the fact that they've been able to do that for so long. Because it's, yeah, it's easy to maybe win a tournament when you're on your best and you're playing 100%. But the big three have found a way, even when they're maybe not playing their best or not feeling their best, managing to still win over and over again, which is incredible. Medvedev opens the Arthur Ashe program at the US Open against Stefan Kozlov. I mean, because Kozlov plays with very little power, more guile and all-court movement, I suspect Medvedev will overpower him. Unless, of course, Kozlov just gets under Medvedev's skin, which can happen in the early rounds. That can happen. And it was funny when the draw first came out, Kozlov immediately, within five minutes, I think, was on Arthur Ashe Stadium practicing, So, which was smart. He obviously wanted to be on that stadium. It's a big moment for him. Yeah, we'll have a crowd a, in this time. Yes, it's a huge stadium. It's it, So it's, that's even in itself tough to get used to because there's so much space around the court and to be able to play the number one player in the world. So it's a lot to deal with for Kozlov. He's going to have to return extremely well. Medvedev's got such a good serve. So I think the return for Kozlov is going to be important, but he's going to have to be willing to play really long points as well. well. One man who could definitely challenge Medvedev, having beaten him recently at the Masters 1000 event in Montreal, is the always entertaining and often controversial Wimbledon finalist Nick Kyrgios, who's been drawn in the same quarter as Medvedev. This year, Kyrgios is one of the highest serve percentages ever seen on tour. So when Mike Cation had the chance to speak with him, he started by asking what had clicked to make the serve even more effective than it usually is. Well, I feel like just my, you know, the physical shape I'm in at the moment, you know, I was carrying a knee injury for the last couple of years that I think was really not allowing me to explode into my serve. And 
and really be as effective as I possibly could. And I just feel like a completely different person from, you know, last year, night and day physically, you know, especially my left knee, I feel as if I'm able to really explode and hit the spots that I want to hit under pressure as well. But, you know, just my overall confidence and, and my, my, my mentality, uh, you know, stepping up to the line, I'm not really thinking about much. I'm just getting up there, serving big and first and second. And usually if, if I'm hitting the spot, it's, it's pretty hard to break. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with those stats and hopefully I can keep it rolling. Does that translate into just more MPH or KM? Oh, def- or, definitely. or is it about hitting the spots a little bit more Definitely. As well? I feel like I wasn't able to hit 220 consistently um, the last couple of years and now I'm able to do that you know for fun um, and I just feel like I'm able to put more pressure on return games as well if I'm holding easier I'm able to get into a couple more return games than I'd like and I feel like that's been a massive improvement as well my return game you know I've been working on a couple of things as well yeah and then that is the next question right so in terms of getting into those return games you're a little bit more relaxed in that regard mm. so what are you starting to look for a little bit more is it early in sets that you're able to feel a little bit more comfortable I'm just working on my returns a bit more I feel like Earlier in my career, I was a really good returner, and then I kind of slacked off a little bit. And it just starts with effort and mentality on returns. You got to be physical. You got to be physical, and you know you got to be aggressive. Look to really return that ball with interest, and that's what I'm doing this year. And I think it's really translating. You know, I'm winning a lot of sets that aren't breakers. So I feel like I'm able to apply a bit more pressure on return games as well as you know winning those service games quite easily. But that's not what I'm focusing on, to be honest. I'm just focusing on good energy. Um, you know, every day waking up with a positive mindset. You know, I practice this morning early, just trying to, you know, be professional, take a, take my tennis a bit more seriously. You know, I'm here on the road while things are happening back home. So I feel as if I'm on the road, I've got to make the most of it and, you know, really put my head down and, and, and work and enjoy the process. And when I'm back home, enjoy that too. But, you know, it's translating um, in, all, in all areas and aspects of my life. Moment. You mentioned things are happening at home. And um, I, I know you have also managed to make sure that you have some family that's on the road with you mm. over the last several months. How, how have you made that happen considering um, everything that's happening at home with your family? Yeah, I mean, COVID the last couple of years made it incredibly hard to travel with more than one or two, you know, members. Um, you know, I didn't even travel with my physio last year. But, you know, obviously... Yeah, parents get older, time doesn't stop for anyone and that's just life. So, you know, they're, they're not able to travel as much um, as they used to. My dad still was able to come for Wimbledon, which was awesome and had probably my best result of my entire life. So I'm, I'm, I'm proud to have had that result whilst they're, you know, kind of still watching and, and can appreciate the hard work that goes into it. But I mean, that's the, that's the mindset right now is if I'm, if I'm on the road and you know, I'm with my girlfriend and, and stuff away from family. I want to put in good shifts and, and make it count. And then when I'm back, really enjoy that time. But I'm just glad they're still here to watch me, you know, kind of mature and, and, and get wins and win tournaments still and, and make them proud. So, um, How have you reset your goals, um, both short-term and long-term, with what's happened this summer? Um, I feel like I just wanted to prove to the world and to myself that I was still able to play that level. Um, you know, I kind of feel like people didn't really forget, but it was overshadowed by, you know, a lot of other things. And feel like I'm still able to produce that tennis week in, week out, you know, if I want to. Um, and, you know, being back playing, I've played 11 events in a year and, you know, nearly top 20 in the world. So, and that's without the points from Wimbledon. So I'm still able to nearly be top 10, you know, playing just over double figure tournaments. So I think, I think that's a message to, to everyone um, saying that I'm still capable and I'm still enjoying it as well. So I've still got a little bit left. Do you feel that now there's that little extra pressure to start thinking about maybe year-end tour finals, those kind of things, or is that not in your head um, at all? No, I mean, look, if I had points from Wimbledon, I'd be in the race for both of them at the moment. You know, I'd actually be in top eight for both singles and doubles, and that hasn't been done for, for forever. So obviously, you know, it's, it's not something on my radar, but, you know, I think the day-to-day process is more important. You know, I feel like that's, 
what I need to be focusing on um, because life just gets too complicated if I focus a month in the in the future or two months, three months. I need to stay day by day, otherwise I just become a very unpredictable human. Um, so. You know, I just, I'm just trusting the process at the moment. He's another one, Nick Kyrgios, who always gives a lot in interviews. And thanks to Mike Cation for the thoughtful questions that brought out some really good answers. Jill, Nick mentioned COVID and the constraints that he, as an Australian, was under. I just wonder whether COVID might have helped him focus on being the tennis player we've always known he could be, but hasn't been until recently. I think it, it could have. I think one of the big things for Nick is the travel. He's mentioned a few times how much he doesn't love to be on the road for that long a period of time. So he's still learning, I think, figuring out how to manage his schedule, how many tournaments to play, how, how many months he wants to be on the road. And I think COVID gave him maybe a little bit of perspective because he was home longer and realized how much he liked being home. But the thing that really helps him on the road is having his mates on the road. He's obviously very good friends with Kokonakis, very good friends with Jack Sock. And I think the fact that they're around more often at the same tournaments really helps him. I, I, I spoke with Kyrgios at, in Washington, D.C. just a couple weeks ago, and he was saying that that was definitely the case, especially to get him through this hard court swing, because it is a long swing for a lot of players, that having his mates around him is, is made a huge difference. And I think having that perspective has helped helped him a lot. But he now plays one of his mates. I know. He plays Kokonakis. I mean, his closest mate, really, <laughs> at the um, Australian Open doubles champions. I'm glad that they've been given the Arthur Ashe night session match, second match on day one on the Arthur Ashe Stadium. I mean... I hope it's not going to be like one of these Venus against Serena finals where they're, they're so close that they don't actually, they lose too much of their competitive instincts. Well, I can't really predict what's going to happen, but I feel it's going to be a very good match, a very fun match to watch. I think they're going to, because they are really good friends and they respect each other so much, I think they're going to have fun with each other out there. I think we're, we're probably going to see a lot of smiles, laughter, but also very intense and high quality tennis. Just one other thing there from that interview, and you picked up on the number of tournaments. Kyrgios has played 11 tournaments this year, which is a very low number for this time of year. I mean, he's obviously learned something for himself. And Federer's talked about prolonging his career by playing fewer tournaments when he's fit to play. But are we creating a problem for ourselves in the sense that we need the marquee names to be out there playing? I think it's tough because obviously the better you do in tournaments, the more matches you're playing, which can add up and you want to make sure you're fresh and healthy and a hundred percent. So the more matches these top players play, the the less tournaments they usually play just because they're having more court time and they're playing more competitive matches. So it depends on the player. Some players like to play a lot of tournaments, even if they're at the top they just feel better they feel like they compete better with more matches under their belt where some players feel fresher when they play less tournaments so when you're planning your tournament schedule do you say right okay I can expect to play about two and a half matches per tournament on average therefore I'll play 23 to 25 tournaments or do you say you know if I'm playing if I can expect to play four or five matches then I'm going to play you know 15 tournaments I think you have an idea in your head of how many tournaments you want to play in a year and you start that year off. You Maybe you talk about it in the off season and you have an idea of, okay, I want to play 25 tournaments 
And then if you have a great first quarter of the year, then you rethink it and you maybe back off sometimes because you want to make sure you're not overworking yourself or overplaying because that can lead to some injuries that can lead to also maybe you're not as mentally fresh. So you kind of gauge it as a year goes off. But I would say in the off season, you definitely have an idea of potentially what your year wants to look like. Just before we move on, let's uh, feature a few more names of possible uh, frontline contenders. Rublev, Nori, Tsitsipas, Berrettini, Yannick Zinner, Rude, Orgelliasi. Many of those jump out at you as people we might be seeing towards the end of the second week. I think all, all of those are potential. I think that's what great what's great about the men's game right now. We talked about the big three. Obviously, Nadal is the only one in the in the draw of the big three right now. But all those, I think, have potential. I I feel Medvedev is is the favorite. In the men's draw, Berrettini sticks out to me in particular of the names that you just mentioned, just because I think these courts suit him, the balls suit him. It's very quick courts, which would be beneficial with the type of game. He'll that he be plays. very fresh, won't he? Assuming he's and over the COVID. Fresh. Yeah, I, I think he would be. I don't know. Some people have the long COVID. Yeah. yeah. But I saw him practicing the other day. He looked he looked very good. But with the big serve and the big forehand, I think, and he's done well here in the past, I think he would feel good going into this event. Well, there's a lot of uh, young names coming through and uh, maybe because uh, Djokovic and Federer aren't here, uh, we're going to see a lot of the young generation coming through. Not not all of them are that young. Many of them are now mid-20s. And let's get the perspective now from someone who has an interesting view on today's tennis, Barbara Shett. She's a former women's world number six. Since finishing her playing career, she's built up a very good on-screen talk show partnership with the seven times Grand Slam champion Mats Villander. Seb Lozier asked Shet how excited she is about the new crop of men's talent coming through. I have been very excited for many years, but, you know, um, the old generation, it's taking uh, their time pretty much with the, with the big three to, to step aside. They're still around, they're, they're still winning the Grand Slams, but uh, um, no, I think uh, it's very exciting. I'm not worried about men's tennis at all in the future. I mean, we have uh, Carlos Alcaraz, who's 19 years of age, and he's uh, playing some amazing tennis. I mean, he won four titles this year has won so many matches this year um, and then you have uh, Holger Rune who's uh, really uh, stepped up the rankings too or climbed up the rankings uh, I would still you know say Sinner Yannick Sinner uh, and and many more so there's a lot of different personalities uh, a lot of exciting players and then the generation after which you wouldn't call the next gen uh, anymore probably like Tsitsipas, Zverev, um, Medvedev, um, it's it's just awesome because of the different game styles, the different uh, you know nationalities are from, they're from, and um, just the different personalities. It, it it makes men's tennis extremely exciting. Exciting, and then you put uh, Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal, and Roger Federer in the mix, and then you've got it all. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to leave. <laughs> no. Given given the names you've just mentioned, you know the Medvedev, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, are, are you surprised by what? Alcaraz has been able to do already. Yes, I'm very surprised, especially how quickly he's uh, risen up in the rankings. I mean, he's pretty much popped up a couple of years ago. We've heard of his name and we're like, hmm, okay, this guy, we have to keep an eye on him. And then last year he won uh, his first title in Umark and, and suddenly he finds himself in the top 10. Um, and, and actually a contender whenever he goes to a Grand Slam tournament to, to win a title there, which is unbelievable. So um, I think to do that, to be able to do that at the age of 19, you have to be extreme. 
extremely good. I just hope that he's going to stay healthy. You know, with, uh, when you watch him play, he's so athletic and um, there's so much um, strain on his body and, and everything. Hopefully he's not going to have any injuries in the future. But uh, I think, uh, I mean, if everything, if he develops the way he has been, then he has to be a future number one. And it looks like it could be quite a tasty rivalry with Holger Rune. Holger's got a little bit of catching up to do, but he wants it. Yeah, but everybody develops in a, in a different way. Holger Rune takes a little bit more time. I mean, it's very unusual the way Alcaraz, I think, uh, developed. But, uh, Holger won his first title in, in, in Munich at the beginning of the year, and, uh, and now he's really established himself after that uh, great success at the French Open as well. Also, completely different uh, game style. I think they're pushing each other as well, and Holger saw the way um, Carlos was playing and had all this success and he was like, well, why shouldn't I be able to do that uh, too? And um, I, I think he also has a bright future. And at the moment, obviously, all eyes are on, on Carlos Alcaraz because he's had so much success already. Barbara, as a, as a former player, but also as a, a commentator on the game, I want to ask you about the coaching because it's a trial that's come in in the yeah. men's game now. Obviously, it's been there in the women's. What do you make of the on-court, off-court coaching? <clears throat> Um, well, it's uh, it's interesting because uh, it's been around for on the women's tour already. There's been uh, plenty of trials and everything, so I've seen it, and I don't feel like much has changed. I mean, there's the odd uh, little conversation from the outside of the court. Uh, personally, I feel like tennis is one of those sports which uh, it's actually pretty unique and nice that you are the only person on the court who decides what to do, what uh, tactic to play. So um, I I don't love the the the, the on-court coaching because I think. I think the player uh, himself or herself should find the solutions. Um, and uh, I am also very traditional, so maybe there has to be something new, so I'm very open uh, for it. Um, but I think the player has to be prepared and know what to do and come up with a plan B, plan C. I think that's, uh, that's, that's what tennis is about as well, to find solutions uh, yourself. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, we'll, 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 we'll see how it goes, I think. So do you think it can be a positive for the men's game or? Um, I don't think it's negative or positive. I'm not sure how many how many players are going to have conversations with uh, with the coach, you know, where am I going to serve? What should I do? You know, play more to the back and to the, to the forehand. I don't think it's going to happen that much. And we've seen it on the women's tour. There hasn't actually been that much, maybe a few little things, you know, maybe, you know, step into the court more or uh, play more spin or something like that. Uh, yes, but there's not going to be full-on conversations. Uh, and the on-court coaching is also not that the, the coach comes on the court at the change events, which uh, has happened uh, on the women's tour. That's, uh, that's been, a, been a rule in the past. Um, so uh, I don't know if it has a positive or a negative impact, actually. Um, we'll, we'll wait and see, I guess. Barbara Shett talking with Seb Lozier. Any thoughts, Jill, on how you feel the coaching experiment is going? From the players that I've spoken to, um, a lot of them actually aren't using it which is interesting, which I thought was interesting to hear. Even though it's available, Some a lot of the men's players are saying, okay, we've, we've spoken to our coach beforehand. We know exactly what our strategy is going into the, to the matches. And so they don't f- necessarily feel like they need it. And also most of the players I spoke to don't really want it. They don't, they don't like it. They don't lo- love the coaching concept. They have this idea that they like that tennis is an individual sport, that you have to go out and figure things on your own out on your own. They feel that's beneficial to them in particular because that's how they learn the best, that you have to figure out how to get through those challenges, those tough moments. And that 
makes them stronger. And so that's been the overall perspective. There have been a couple, obviously, that want the coaching. It's been more the younger players, the up-and-coming players that utilize it, and they enjoy that. Um, but overall, it's the majority have, have not used it. In, in it's interesting. If very few people are using it, I wonder whether they will get rid of it because it's not being used or leave it because it's not being used. I mean, there's a case for either. But for me, the acid test about whether it makes a difference is, are there going to be matches which are heading one way, the losing player has a word with their coach, changes tactics, and the match changes direction. I'm not aware of any. Are you aware of any like that since it started on the 11th of July, this experiment? Probably not since it started on the men's. I can speak from it in experience being a WTA player because it's been in WTA events for a very long time. And I didn't necessarily want it, but since it was available, I used it in my matches. And it did help. It did help me, and I felt like there was maybe a couple times I can think of that it probably changed the match around for me. But it was mainly my mentality that I just needed to get the, into that calm mental state. But the majority of the time, in my experience, from what I saw, I would say I don't necessarily felt like it made a, a difference. But on the WTA tour. You interrupted the match to talk to your coach, right? They could come out in the court on the changeover. Okay, on the changeover, So And it right. had to be within that 90 yeah. seconds. Yeah, okay. So it, it's... So this is different, right? You can speak from different. the stands. Yeah, if you're at the same side as, as your coach. Yeah. Barbara talked there about the exciting young generation, but to me, some names are more crucial than others. I mean, I like to see variety in tennis, contrasts in styles, and I sort of see a potential danger that everyone could adopt the same way of playing if it's the, the way that seems to work. So for me, the excitement of the next generation depends on players like Shapovalov, Musetti, Korda, and others who offer something a bit different. Obviously, Kyrgios's great progress in recent weeks has been encouraging from that perspective. But one player who's also part of the emerging generation who offers something different is Jensen Brooksby. Now, I know you talked to his coach, Jill. We'll hear from that now, because Brooksby reached the round of 16 at last year's US Open with wins over Mikhail Ima, Taylor Fritz and Aslan Karatsev before he went out to Novak Djokovic. Joseph Gilbert is his coach, and Jill started by asking Gilbert what Brooksby had learned from that defeat to Djokovic. We went into the tournament feeling like all the matches beforehand were going to be really tough. They're very good players. Yimmer is a very good player. Fritz, amazing player. Um, Kratzev he lost to before, so uh, uh, just at the French. So we knew it was tough, but uh, we also felt like if he could play his game and play the strategy and do the things, you know, he, he like I said, we felt like we could win those matches. Uh, uh, would he win? No idea. But could he win? We believed he could. Yeah. And so um, when he got to Djokovic, not the same feeling. <laughs> so, How did that so, change? So, well, you know... More nerves? A, or? Yeah, it's a different level, right? You know, now you're thinking like, uh, okay, this, you know, and arguably, and he knows I believe that Djokovic is one of the greatest if not the greatest tennis player ever live and I don't know if Jensen believes I think he's that and so so because I'm so tough on him and I'm so hard on him and I want him to do things so you know I wanted Djokovic for for information you know to find out what he needed to work on where he was at and 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 what things he needed to do how he matched up um, because a lot of how I've trained him and how he plays comes off of Djokovic, it comes off of Federer, it comes off of Nadal because those are the guys I've watched for the last 20 years and, and uh, I haven't really watched too many other players because, you know, in my opinion, those are the three best and, and uh, uh, if you want to beat the best, you got to kind of figure out what they're doing. And um, so we went in there with a matchup, with a game plan, with a strategy. Uh, interestingly enough, after the match, Djokovic said that. 
He said, like, this kid came out with a, a game plan and a strategy and he executed it. I felt like he knew it. Um, and we did have one. And, and, and it worked to a degree. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and everything Djokovic said, I, I was really, um, it was interesting. What all, everybody else said, I felt like Djokovic was by far the most accurate, you know, of, of what I felt happened out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it, it showed me how in tuned he is with what's going with on what's going there. on yeah, yeah he was amazing at how he broke it down and where the momentum switched and and what he did to switch the momentum I, I i agreed with everything what was that information that you gained would you say from that match um the physical jensen those two games in the second set lasted a half an hour and i could feel that on jensen on the physical side and 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 djokovic bared down more um but but also and that's one thing that wasn't really said you know Jensen just played five sets and just played four sets and played four sets and and he doesn't have a lot of experience at that and he doesn't know how that feels and he doesn't know how it is to play Djokovic in three out of five sets and so um, uh, I knew the physical would be you know and, and and that's one thing that 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 you know Djokovic is amazing at but he's amazing at a lot of things but that physical toll playing him over three out of five and and, and that mental energy on Arthur Ashe that it takes to be out there for that long with the, the peaks and the valleys and the ups and downs of, a, of that type of match. So, um, so it's, it, it was a great experience, and, and um, we learned a lot from it, go back to the video on it and see uh, any holes in the games. Uh, the rush for him and I, the addiction is the winning and losing. That is everything to him, and so he was not happy to lose at the US Open you know and he's he's, he's, he's he's bummed about it and he wants to get better and he wasn't particularly obviously we both know it was a good tournament but you know he he, he wants to win that match and uh, uh, and that's what's that's what fun for both of us right now we don't know where this is gonna end up and that was a really interesting comment Jill Djokovic bore down more what does Joseph Gilbert mean by that he means that Djokovic can get into this stage where all of a sudden you can see him just, I kind of view it as seeing like sinking in or locking down as far as he gets into this mode or zone where he just is not going to make a mistake. And you can see it happen physically, I think, in his demeanor on the court and the way he moves. And he gets into this mode where he's just not going to make a mistake. And that sends a message across the court, and you can feel it as an opponent. All of a sudden, you're feeling, what am I going to do to be able to win a point? Because you know he's not going to make a mistake. He's one of the quickest movers on the court, so balanced. And that's that's how I view it. He just gets, he just gets locked in. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why someone like Medvedev says, even though I'm world number one, there are still matches I will lose to the big three, which they wouldn't lose if they were in my position. Yeah, it's just incredible to watch. I don't know if a lot of other people can see. I mean, most of us can see it. You can see it when Djokovic gets into this rhythm. And it's an extra focus that he all of a sudden gets. Not that he needs more focus because he's already there, but an extra focus intensity. And it's just uh, amazing to watch. And 
that's what I mean. That's what Medvedev means is he they can feel it across the court, where it's just going to take that much little extra to stay in that match to be able to come through against someone like Djokovic. Yeah, it's amazing the the way Joseph Gilbert talks about belief, and he clearly believed that Brooksby could beat anybody until he came up against Djokovic, <laughs> and uh, obviously that changed the mindset. So those are all in the singles, but let's have a word about the doubles. It'll be very competitive in the men's doubles with the US Open defending champions Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury. Currently third in the doubles race to Turin, leading the way. There have been two more Masters 1000 titles for the pair this year, including recent success in Cincinnati, meaning that Joe Salisbury consolidates his position as the world's best doubles player. From Great Britain, Joe Salisbury. Tennis for me means lifestyle, passion. I feel lucky now that it's it's my career, it's what I do for a living, it's it's my job and but it's also yeah something I love doing. I feel lucky to be to be able to do it and keep trying to be the best that I can be. I'm Joe Salisbury. My moment is reaching world number one. Yeah, so both my parents played. My mum did, did a little bit of coaching. My dad played to, to a decent level. My older brother and sister, they were already playing before I could even walk. So I started picking out the mini tennis racket and, and hitting some balls when I was very young. Eight, nine, ten. I remember my, my dad driving me every weekend to different tournaments. So they'd be giving up all their free time to drive us to training in the evening and drive us to tournaments at the weekends. Yeah, I had mono when I was 15 for about a year. I didn't play at all. And then I got a lot of injuries, had stress fracture in my lower back and shoulder issues. And so I didn't really play any, any juniors. And I still had the issue a bit when I went off to college, uh, University of Memphis. And kind of from then I kind of got healthy and managed to play. But for those few years, I didn't, I didn't play too much. It was an easy decision to go to college. It was always something in the back of my mind to continue education as well. I was lucky that I found a great place to go, a great coach, and um, yeah, it was, it was a, definitely the experience that I needed to kind of get healthy again, develop my tennis, and had an amazing, amazing time as well. So we got a wild card into the 250 in Memphis in my senior year. I played with, with Dave O'Hare, who's now uh, traveling coach with myself and Rajiv. Played against the Bryan brothers first rounds and it was an incredible experience. I remember the first time where we were just knocking up in the warm up, uh, kind of seeing them across the net. It was uh, pretty surreal and we ended up playing a good match. That gave us a lot of confidence and belief that the top of the game obviously wasn't a million miles off and maybe reach that level one day. Wimbledon 2018 was my breakthrough. It's pretty special. This was one of my favorite memories and favorite tournaments of my career so far. I had a wild card with Freddie Nielsen and had an, an amazing run, made, made the semi-finals of Wimbledon and yeah, jumped up in the rankings to about 40 and then had a strong end to the year winning my first tour event as well. So that's the kind of, that's the tournament that, that got me onto playing on the main tour and was just an amazing experience. And again, another one that kind of gave me big belief that I could play with, with the best guys in the world. Oh, that is a stunner from Salisbury. Rajiv and I started playing together at the start of 2019. Neither of us had a set partner. We were both kind of looking around for someone to someone to play with and I I asked him, I had a few guys that I was speaking to but he was top of my list of people that I wanted to play with. Rajiv and I work really well together because I think we, we understand each other. We get on well on and off the court and we've just developed uh, yeah, an understanding and good communication and we've got a lot better at 
kind of winning matches when maybe we're not playing at our best and kind of getting the best out of each other. Job done for Rajiv Ram and Joe Salisbury. In 2020, we won our first Grand Slam at the Australian Open. Obviously, that was an incredible moment and I think something that didn't expect to happen so early in, in my career and in our in our partnership and we knew that if we could get through some of the, cl the close ones that we we did have the ability to go all the way. We had had a great run and ended up playing one of our, one of our best matches in, in the final to win. Obviously the winning the first one was special but we want to want to keep going and, and definitely try and win as many as we can. Being number one wasn't actually on my mind that much. We were more focused on each tournament that we're playing trying to do as well as we can and win win the tournaments. I think we knew at the start of this year that we'd have a good good chance because Mektik and Pavic had did so well the start the first half of last year. It was obviously in the back of our minds, but we were just focused on our matches and kind of wanted to keep winning and, and, and win it on our, on our own terms. They are everywhere right now, Raji Fram and Joe Salisbury. I found out that I was number one after we finished our second round match in Miami, we just had a good win. Our coach, Dave, mentioned it on the side of the court. He just said uh, that they're gonna be, gonna be number one now because Mektig and Pavic had lost their match. I think it was just excitement. Um, just felt really special. Obviously at the time we felt good about getting the win as well, just come off court and was still thinking about the tournament that we're in and, and trying to win and trying to win that. But now that it's happened, just wanna wanna stay there as long as possible. Yeah, looking back on the journey to number one, it's something to be honest, which I, I didn't think would would happen. It's not something that I was expecting. When I first made it onto the main tour, I was just feeling so lucky to be doing this and enjoying it so much that it wasn't until kind of worked my way up the rankings till we won our first Grand Slam, won some bigger tournaments that kind of thought, oh, maybe this, maybe this could happen. But we know how much we've we've put into it and how hard we've worked. It's been a long journey. I'm really enjoying it and looking forward to, to everything else that's to come as well. The world doubles number one, Joe Salisbury. And Jill, the line that jumped out at me from that compilation of reflections was when he talked about playing the Bryans. He looked over the net, thought it was surreal to be playing such legends. And then when he and his partner played well, he realised he wasn't a million miles from the very top. I guess that's what up-and-comers playing the top names get out of that kind of experience. Absolutely. I, I think it's your dream to play the best team in the entire world. That's what you dream of. You gauge yourself about how well you can do against them. And sometimes it can be surprising when you go out there and you're like, wait, wait a minute, I'm not being blown off the court for someone that I've looked up to for so long. And I think that's exactly what happened with Joe. He got he got surprised. And then that gives you, when you realize you're at the same standards, at the same level, that gives you that extra confidence. And I think you could see that rising in Joe. I, I mean, I've been watching him now for a few years. And I spoke to him and Rajiv Ram at Indian Wells a few years ago when they first partnered up together. And they thought they would be a good team. Obviously, that's why they got together. But they had success immediately from the start. And that gives you that extra confidence as well. And Rajiv was saying their communication is so good. Their coaches around them. They were really open and insightful and open to new information. And I think that's huge. They're always willing to learn. And they've just gelled so well together. 
And I think Joe in particular, when you watch him play, I mean, he's all over the place. I mean, he's so quick at the net. He's got such good reflexes. And he's always willing to take that risk and move, which has just made him better. If you look at the three Grand Slam doubles champions this year, Kokonakis and Kyrgios were unseeded in Australia. Aravello and Roger, Roland Garros, great story, but you wouldn't have tipped them at the start. Ebden and Purcell, okay, they were runners-up in uh, Australia, but they won Wimbledon. I mean... It's exciting. It it is. (laughs) And I mean, for Salisbury and Ram to be top seeds, that may not be a good thing. Well, yeah, I, I think they know it's open because it's it's kind of like the singles, actually, where we were just talking about. There's so many um, players that can get through to not only end the year number one, but win, win a slam. And I think it's the same situation in the doubles. And I find that kind of exciting. Well, Joe Salisbury is the men's world number one in the individual doubles rankings. The 18-year-old Coco Goff has become the number one women's doubles player after her victory at the Canadian Open alongside fellow American Jessica Pagula. Goff has been troubled by an ankle injury ahead of this US Open, but she does play on the opening day. And she was hoping to come out on top as she went head-to-head with the ATP player Francis Tiafo in a quiz about the soon-to-be-retired Serena Williams. They were answering their question separately, not together. Nice and easy, Coco, straight out of the gates. How many Grand Slams has Serena won? Just singles? Uh, 23. 23. <laughs> there you go, one for one. <laughs> When is Serena's birthday? This one is, I don't know, because she doesn't celebrate her birthday, so I never, like, paid attention to it. I actually I, I have no idea, honestly. Uh, that's terrible, but I have no idea. It's September 26th. Oh, okay. I know she doesn't celebrate her birthday. How old was Serena when she turned professional? Now, I can give you multiple choices. Yeah, multiple life. choice, okay. please. Yeah, so she was either 13, 14, or 15. I was going to say 14. 14, correct. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think she was 15. She was 14. 14! Dang it! Okay, same age as me. I should have known that. Okay. What year did Serena win the US Open for the Nin- first time? 1999. I didn't even need the multiple. No, I didn't need that. <laughs> I knew yeah. that one. Okay. 99? Yes. What is Serena's middle name? I, we, they call her Meeks, but like. Is it Meeks? Jamaica? Yes. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's what we call her. People that are close to her only, but yeah. How many career singles titles has Serena won? 79? Not 80. quite. No, no, no. 71? Well, we know 23 at least. <laughs> okay, I actually can do this. Go ahead. Okay. Was it 73, 86, or 98? 73. Very close. Close. I'm going to go with the middle, 86, 90, 98. Oh, 73? What language did Serena learn and speak at a trophy? French. There you go. Got that one. Do you speak French, Coco? Parlez Francais and (laughs) Per. French. French, excellent. That was crazy, the French. I I couldn't believe it. Where and when? Did Serena break Steffi Graf's Grand Slam records? She got 23 at Aussie Open. MJ gave her the shoes. Which year, do you remember? 17? Yes, Francis. Yeah. I think it was AO 2017. Yeah. How many years has Serena finished as the WTA year-end world number one? Is there a multiple choice in this there or no? There is multiple choice. Okay. 106. 
Five. Five? Five, five. Thanks. Five. Five. Oh. How many Grand Slam finals has Serena played against Venus? Seven. Five. Nine. Nine? They nine. played nine times? Yeah. Oh. Okay, that's crazy, first of all. Okay, how many times was it before I was born? Who did Serena partner with in the mixed doubles at Andy Wimbledon? Murray. Didn't even need to finish no, the question. No, I know that one. Murray? Yes. That was crazy. Which actor played Serena's father, Richard, in King Richard? The best, Will Smith. <laughs> oh, the GOAT Will Smith, baby. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty solid, like, yeah. I think they're all right. Screw you, Francis. You got lucky, but I'm, I know more about Serena than you do. Francis can't even drive. Like, how did I lose to him? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so Tiafo takes the checkered flag, though Goff wants a re-race. And to answer Coco's question, Serena won six majors before Coco was born. That was in March 2004. Jill, this is expected to be Serena's last tournament. What's the biggest plank of her legacy for you? Uh, so I was listening to Coco Goff's interview the other day, the press conference just a couple days ago before the U.S. Open starts on the main draw. And I think she made a great point, which I agree with. And that's how I view her legacy as well Is of course, she's had amazing success, probably the, one of the best tennis players in the entire world ever. But she has so many numbers that you can talk about, whether it's Grand Slams, titles, weeks at number one. But it was what Coco Goff said that I agree with is the inspiration that she's had throughout the not only tennis world, but this but the sporting world. I think Coco Goff mentioned something when she was a little girl that she was looking at the television, saw Serena and said, wow, someone like me that looks like me can have that kind of success. And that really kind of hit me. I got the chills when she said that. And I was like, wow, that, that's amazing. I feel like there's probably a lot of other kids that feel that way around the world, not only in tennis, but whatever other sport that you're playing in. And I think she transcends tennis and transcends the sporting world and being able to inspire so many around the world, which I think is awesome. You use the word kids there, which I'm pleased to hear, because yeah. for me, so often someone like Serena and other high achieving uh, women athletes and, and, and you know people in other walks of life as well, they're cited as inspiration for girls. But actually, Serena can be an inspiration for boys Absolutely. as well, especially boys from underrepresented ethnic groups. Absolutely. I mean, it's not only the women that are talking about Serena's legacy. A lot of the guys on the tour have been asked about it, too. And they've all said the same thing. It's tough when you see a legend come to the point where they are going to retire. It's inevitable, obviously. But it's still, when it comes to that point, you do get sad that someone is continuing on. And she's going to evolve. Of course, she has so many business ventures that are happening. So we're not going to see, we're going to see a lot more of her. Um, but to not see her compete anymore, I mean, that's something that you we talk about all the time. Every time she's in the draw, so that's going to be that's going to be sad. But and she'll be emotional, and there will a lot of people will be emotional. But it's going to happen, so you have to <laughs> you have to accept it. Yeah, you use the word evolve there. She used the word evolve rather than retire. And people sort of made a bit of a. Uh, you know, they, they laughed a little bit about that. But actually, I thought it was a good word to use. I did. I liked it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
I think it's just different. So people have to get used to different. But I, I, I like that she said I'm evolving into something else, which yeah, I think is great. I agree. She plays Danka Kovinic from Montenegro. Seven o'clock match on day one and Arthur Ashe. Would you like that to be the end for her on the basis that it's a, a set piece event on the biggest tennis arena in the world? Or would you like to see her win two or three matches, even though it's highly unlikely she could get the way through the whole tournament? I don't I don't know if I mean, of course, you don't want any match to be her last match. I don't know if I prefer one way or the other, because I think it's going to be hard for her either way. Whenever that last match is, it could be first round. It could be the finals. Who knows? But I think Kovinich is a great competitor. Um, she's very feisty. I think she's going to be up for the match against Serena. Um, but, I mean, I think we all would like to see her I mean, win a few matches and do well. I don't, I don't know if she'll get to the final. I think that's a little bit of a stretch just because she she's only played a few, tur- uh, few tournaments. So. But, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. I think there's going to be an end, so it's coming inevitably. So. It's a question I'm reluctant to ask because there are so many different ways of defining greatness. But the greatest player of all time, greatest female player of all time? Yeah, she's up there for sure. I mean, we talked before about this. There's also Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova. There's so many that, that, you, can, that you can mention. But as far as active players, yes, greatest of all time. Active players, I think, definitely. And uh, I was reminded of a little story about 20 years ago when... Um, a friend of mine walked into a shop in New York and was told, um, wow, you're at the tennis. Those Williams sisters are great. And he had not expected the shopkeeper to be at all interested in tennis. They took tennis to a different level, the Williams sisters. And it's great to see them playing doubles as well. It is great. And I think even if you don't follow tennis, everyone knows the Williams sisters. (laughs) Absolutely. I must uh, get you to pick a winner, men's singles and women's singles, which will hold against you in uh, two weeks' time. Oh, great. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I'll do the same. Uh, For the women, I'm going to go with Goff. I was looking through the draw and it took me a while to come up with a name because there are so many options. Um, But I did end up going with Goff. And for the men, I'm going to go with Medvedev. Well, I'm joining you on Medvedev. Okay. I also found it very difficult in the women. I looked for players in form. I was briefly attracted to Kvitova because, you know, she's been playing well in the run-up to the US Open, but she so often plays well in the run-up to a major and then stumbles somewhere along the route. I'm going to go, this is a bit of a flyer, I'm going to go for Jessica Pagula. I don't think that's a bit of a flyer, actually. I think that's a great call. I, she was one that stuck out to me as well. I think these courts are very good for her. I think they're good for both Pagula and Goff. Um, but this, she is such a clean ball striker and just debuted in the top 10 this year. And I think she looks like she feels like she belongs there and belongs and, and deserves to stay there. So she's got that confidence. But she doesn't yet have the pressure of people expecting her to win. So it could be the perfect combination for her on this occasion. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's a great call. Views there of Jill Kravis joining me, Chris Bowers. Jill will be back with me next weekend on the podcast where we'll review week one of the US Open. Remember to check out the ATP podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and TuneIn, where as well as hearing the podcast, you can also listen to the exclusive one-on-one interviews every Wednesday. Coming up this week is a fascinating chat that Candy Reid conducted with Holger Runa's coach, Lars Christensen. Well worth a listen. So that's it from us. I'm Chris Bowers. Wherever you are in the world, enjoy the tennis and we'll see you back here on the podcast next Sunday. Bye-bye.